Hey, this is Brad from Needless to Say. If you ever need a little THC in your NPR, you're in the right place. Baked and Awake, exclusively here on the Damaged Goods Network. Episode 56 of the Baked and Awake podcast. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, intro to the Nog Hamadi Library, take two, I highly suggest you press pause right now, go back and select the episode just below this in the listing, give that a listen before jumping into today's show. I'm going to take a quick dab of some live resin from oleum oil right now. Um, And I can't freaking remember. I got the tag around here somewhere. I can't remember the strain. spirit leave my body which is perfect for jumping back into the gospel of Thomas we're going to pick up where we left off from last episode with chapter 23 we will read through the next 10 chapters just ending it chapter 33 this is the Thomas O. Lambden translation of the Gospel of Thomas. All your links for this material will be, of course, included in the show notes.
23. Jesus said, I shall choose you, one out of a thousand, and two out of ten thousand, and they shall stand as a single one. 24. His disciples said to him, Show us the place where you are, since it is necessary for us to seek it. He said to them, Whoever has ears, let him hear. There is light within a man of light, and he lights up the whole world. If he does not shine, he is darkness. 25. Jesus said, Love your brother like your soul. Guard him like the pupil of your eye. 26. Jesus said, You see the mote in your brother's eye, but you do not see the beam in your own eye. When you cast the beam out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to cast the mote from your brother's eye. 27. Jesus said, If you do not fast as regards the world, you will not find the kingdom. If you do not observe the Sabbath, as a Sabbath, you will not see the Father. 28. Jesus said, I took my place in the midst of the world, and I appeared to them in flesh. I found all of them intoxicated. I found none of them thirsty. And my soul became afflicted for the sons of men, because they are blind in their hearts and do not have sight. For empty they came into the world, and empty too they seek to leave the world. But for the moment they are intoxicated. When they shake off their wine, then they will repent. Twenty-nine. Jesus said, If the flesh came into being because of spirit, it is a wonder. But if spirit came into being because of the body, it is a wonder of wonders. Indeed, I am amazed at how this great wealth has made its home in this poverty. 30. Jesus said, Where there are three gods, they are gods. Where there are two, or one, I am with him. 
31. Jesus said, No prophet is accepted in his own village. No physician heals those who know him. Thirty-two. Jesus said, A city being built on a high mountain and fortified cannot fall, nor can it be hidden. Thirty-three. Jesus said, Preach from your housetops, that which you will hear in your ear. For no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, nor does he put it in a hidden place, but rather he sets it on a lampstand so that everyone who enters and leaves will see its light. We will end our recitation of the Gospel of Thomas here for the purposes of brevity and because I believe the introduction has been made at this point. I am considering taking the audio from this episode and last and recording the full text of the book and releasing it at some later point in time as special content if there appears to be some interest in it. When considering the impact of the Nag Hammadi Library, it's crucial to have some appreciation for not only how amazing it is, we even have these books at all, but also how much cultural, technological, in the form of the construction of the books themselves, and the methods used, and even political insight they provide into this incredibly important era of human history, wherein when so much of the world's core value systems that we hold today draw their roots back to. Uh, in looking for some support and additional understanding on this, I found an erudite summary of the historical gestalt in which we find the Nag Hammadi texts on a website called catholicireland.net. That is catholicireland.net. We will read an excerpt from that summary of an in-depth analysis of the texts in the form of a book called The Gnostic Discoveries. The section we'll review is focused on the science of codicology, the codices, study of the codices, at the Museum of Cairo for some perspective on the texts and their physical construction. Codicology at the Coptic Museum. 
Meanwhile, back at the Coptic Museum, in the aftermath of the Nag Hammadi discovery. Scholarly work on the physical remains of the Nag Hammadi codices has provided new codicological perspectives on the Nag Hammadi library. Codicology is the study of the practice of making books, and the codices of the Nag Hammadi library represent some of the earliest books known. We now understand how these early books were put together. The Nag Hammadi codices stand at a point of transition from scrolls to codices. From the written word preserved on sheets that were rolled up to the written word preserved on sheets that were bound as pages within covers. That transition, aided by those who produced the Nag Hammadi codices, changed forever the way in which the written word could be communicated. In many respects, the Nag Hammadi bookbinding process resembles the process of bookbinding employed ever since. For the Nag Hammadi texts, like other Egyptian texts, papyrus reed was the source of the fibers used for the creation of the sheets on which the texts were written. Papyrus fibers have been made into sheets as a kind of paper in Egypt for millennia. The ancient process continues today at the Papyrus Institute in Egypt. It turns out that papyrus is an especially durable writing surface. If the Nag Hammadi codices had been manufactured using wood pulp instead of papyrus, the texts of the library would have been disintegrated into dust long ago. Traditionally, papyrus was assembled into rolls, and at the time of the manufacture of the Nag Hammadi codices, papyrus must have been obtained in that form. In the production of papyrus book pages from papyrus rolls, the rolls were cut into the proper width for sheets of a book. Each sheet is two pages wide, and the sheets were stacked and folded to form something called a choir, in parentheses, a bundle of sheets. The use of papyrus fibers in the construction of the Egyptian books allows scholars to identify and trace fibers in the sheets and pages, and this has enabled scholars to position and place fragments and reassemble fragmentary pages of the Nag Hammadi codices. After the choirs of the Nag Hammadi library were put together, and apparently after the scribes had copied the texts onto the papyrus pages, the choirs were bound in leather covers and secured with thongs. Leather covers could be decorated, and the cover of the Nag Hammadi Codex II bears an attractive design. The portion of the leather that came from the tail of the animal could form part of the protective flap for the book, and a thong could be attached. Codices were valuable, and the covers and flaps protected such valuable possessions. In order to convert the leather-bound codices from soft-bound to hard-bound books, 
Scrap papyrus from letters and documents was sometimes pasted inside the covers of the Nag Hammadi codices. And then a blank piece of papyrus could be glued over the unsightly material. This scrap papyrus, called cartonage, from the Nag Hammadi Library has been carefully examined by scholars and published in a volume dedicated to ancient waste paper. Nag Hammadi Codices, Greek and Coptic Papyri from the Cartonage of the Covers. Edited by John W. B. Barnes, Gerald M. Brown, and John C. Shelton. The cartonage contains names of people, places, and dates. And these bits of information provide clues to the time and place of the construction of the codices. In the cartonage, there are dates in the middle of the 4th century and just before, and names suggesting monks and locations around Pibo and Senecet, Chenoboskia. Cartonage from the cover of Nag Hammadi Codex 7 mentions a monk named Sansons, Sansnos, Sansnos, who supervised the cattle of a monastery. He would have had easy access to leather for codex covers. In other words, the evidence of the cartonage may provide points of contact between the production of the Nag Hammadi codices and the Pacomian monastic movement. The Production and Burial of the Nag Hammadi Library The evidence remains circumstantial, but archaeological and codicological work has provided tantalizing hints that may help resolve the mystery of who produced and who buried the Nag Hammadi codices. I suggest, the author suggests, that the hints implicate the Pacomian monks. On the basis of information from the poet Pottery Remains and the Wadi Sheikh Ali and the cartonage from the codices themselves, we may conjecture that Pacomian monks most likely compiled the Nag Hammadi codices and later buried them by the cliff. The codices were put together around the middle of the 4th century, or a little later. Their date of manufacture cannot precede the dates found in the cartonage. The Nag Hammadi Library may have functioned, formally or informally, as part of a Pacomian monastic library in the area. In that regard, the Nag Hammadi codices may be compared and contrasted with another collection of manuscripts discovered in the area, the Dishna papers, sometimes referred to as the Bodmer Papyri. I was unable to find additional links on either of those in a casual search, so something to look into further for those who have the desire. James Robinson, the scholarly sleuth who pieced together the story of the Nag Hammadi Library, has also researched the story of the Dishna papers, and he describes the discovery of these texts and their place within a Pacomian monastic library. This discovery included archival copies of 
formal letters of abbots of the Pacomian order. And the rest of the holdings were also what one would expect of a Pacomian library. Biblical, apocryphal, martyrological, and other edifying material. To be sure, there are also some Greek and Latin classical texts whose presence may be explained by the assumption that persons who joined the Pacomian movement gave their worldly possessions to the order, which would thus have acquired many non-Christian texts. Later, they would have been taken to be venerable texts, like the others in the archive, fragile and fragmentary relics to be preserved, and no longer texts to be read. In the case of the Nag Hammadi Library, the texts finally were buried at the foot of Jabal al-Tarif to be discovered centuries later. The fact that they were buried and not burned or thrown into the Nile River indicates a desire to preserve and not destroy. Further, the scribal notes in the texts themselves are pious and not heresiological in their perspectives. What, then, could have prompted Pacomian monks to bury the Nag Hammadi codices there at the cliff? A momentous event that happened in the year 367 may suggest an answer to this question. In that year, the Archbishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, soon to be acclaimed the champion of Orthodox Christianity, wrote a festal letter to be read in the churches of Egypt. Among other things, the letter addresses the issue of the canon, of what books should be considered authoritative and inspired, and thus included in the Bible. In his festal letter, Athanasius lists what he as archbishop believes to be the canonical books of the Christian scriptures, and his list may be the first ever to include the 27 books of the New Testament that eventually were used in most churches. Later, Jerome opted for the same 27 books in his Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate. Athanasius was deeply concerned about the canon, and that issue of canon is confronted anew in the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library with newly recovered Christian Gospels ads, letters, and apocalypses that also claim to be authoritative and inspired. In his festal letter, Athanasius raises another related issue that was dear to his heart. Heresy. He condemns the heretics and warns the faithful to beware of the heretics and their despicable writings. Apocryphal texts, he maintains, are a fabrication of the heretics, who write them down when it pleases them, and generously assign to them an early date of composition in order that they may be able to draw upon them as supposedly ancient writings, and have in them occasion to deceive the guileless. These heresiological words of warning were translated into Coptic, and it is said, 
were adopted to serve as a rule and guide for Pacomian monks. The casual title for this festal letter, when it was in circulation, was called Facus Nusicus in the Latin. It is quite plausible, then, to conclude that one likely scenario for the time of and occasion for the burial of the Nag Hammadi Codices may be related to Athanasius' festal letter of 367. When Pacomian monks heard the stern words of admonition of the holy archbishop, they may have thought of the books of spiritual wisdom in their possession, books that could be considered heretical, and they determined to dispose of them. Yet, they simply could not destroy them. So they gathered them and hid them safely away to be uncovered on another day. The rest of that Analysis and uh, overview of the book can be found at the link that I've provided for you at catholicireland.net, available in the show notes, as always. Uh, in closing on this topic for the moment, I want to mention I'm also including in the show notes a list of uh, some books that have partially inspired, you know, the desire to share this topic in the first place, I guess. Um, and the list below that I'll get into here is by no means comprehensive. Um, but before that, I want to point out that, you know, things that I can't help but observe in reading the first few chapters of the Gospel of Thomas, especially reading them aloud for the recording of the podcast, um, is that this Jesus that's depicted, I feel, here in this book is not characterized, colored in, with the same tenor as the, you know, like the mainstream modern Jesus, the turn the other cheek, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, uh, sort of Jesus of the canonical Bible. And that's not to say that you can't point to examples in the canonical Bible of Jesus doing things like we see here. This prophet, you know, seems to speak when confronted with, like, banal or short-sighted questions from his disciples in riddles or sort of thought puzzles, um, challenging his audience with his words to set with them, to make meaning out of them based on their own direct experience, you know, before returning to their teacher with more unproductive questions. This exploration barely scratches the surface of the significance of the Nag Hammadi Library. Interested listeners will want to explore the incredible trove of resources that got us started here and powered most of this last couple of episodes. That is gnosis.org, G-N-O-S-I-S.org. Again, in the show notes for you. 
for your own self-driven research into these fascinating and impactful texts. As I mentioned, you know, this is, this is, uh, certainly has been fueled and inspired by a lot of books that I've read over my lifetime, uh, in my, uh, earlier adulthood when the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown came out. Um, I was already down this path, uh, down this rabbit hole, uh, having read books like the bloodline of the Holy Grail and, and others at that time. But, um, Da Vinci Code is a lot of fun uh, and a highly sensationalized sort of introduction to a lot of, uh, you know, sort of apocrypha mythology and that um, potential, you know, lost bloodline of Jesus mythology, etc. Um, a book that is more academic, but really amazing and uh, had a lasting impact on me and one that I still have on our shelf here today in the house is one by HMS Richards entitled What Jesus Said, and in that book, what's cool about that is they have, like, everything that's in the canon that is sort of attributed to Jesus, and that's, like, the full text of the book, cover to cover, a couple 300 pages, and that's all written in, like, light gray font. In darker black font is some of that text, okay, uh, a subset of it. And that is stuff that made it into the canon, but that there are actually historical sources for to some extent that make it so it's probable that maybe Jesus said something like that. Okay, the, the gray text is like, eh, maybe, we're not, I don't know, we got nothing to verify this. The smallest portion of text in the whole book is in red font, red ink, and uh, it's a fraction of the other two, very small fraction, and that is the text that, you know, we really kind of think that is the closest thing to really actually attributable to Jesus it was a great book. It was it was really cool to, you know, think about the game of post office that goes on here. Um, when you read into the Nag Hammadi texts further, um, you'll find that the copies of um, Plato's Republic that were found in Nag Hammadi were being uh, lightly meddled with, revised, and edited uh, in their in the process of their translation. There at the Pacomian Monastery, possible Pacomian Monastery, where they originated from. So, uh, and as I joked about above a few minutes ago with my fakest Nusicus comment, which was obviously me, uh, we see here already an early and powerful historical document showing, um, you know, the thought leaders of the time strongly directly attempting to you know shape and constrain the faith of the people and their sort of mental picture of how their religion worked how the world worked to a great extent um 
that is stuff that just gives me pause and makes me think about how we've been doing this to ourselves and to each other since forever in sophisticated ways. And this archbishop sent out many copies of this letter to far-flung corners of their faith's sphere. Had it read on the same day all around the world. So no matter where you went, no matter where you were, the population around you would be abuzz with the import, the content of that incredibly you know, meaningful news bulletin from their dear leader. So, yeah. There we go. Nagamati Scriptures, Nagamati Library, introduction at best. Uh, love to come back here, as with so many of our topics. And, you know, I look back all the time on old show topics and so many of them are ripe for returning to just not yet there's time we're going to keep going out there and we'll find where things connect and automatically automagically bring us back to these other topics um but it's one that i look forward to a few of you spending a little time with uh, have some fun with not only the Nag Hammadi Library itself, but if you've never dug in and read the Da Vinci Code or fuck, watch the movie. I don't care. Watch the Tom Hanks movie. It's still fun. It's pretty much the same thing as the, as the book at that point. Um, yeah, there's a couple other books here in the, in the list, and you guys can check them out, including the Tao of Physics, the Tao Te Ching, um, the Apocrypha in general, the, the other apocryphal books that you'll find as addendums in between the Old Testament and the New Testament in like your King James Bibles and your New International Versions and some of the other like academic slanted Bibles that, that uh, folks use. <clears throat> but you can find them all here digitally, and I've got you linked. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's talk about the Nag Hammadi text. Let's talk about... The Corpus Hermeticum, let's talk about all sorts of fun stuff like that. Catch me on Instagram, as always, at baked underscore and underscore awake. And uh, I usually post about each episode as they come out just a little bit and welcome your comments on those posts and welcome your emails always at talk to us at bakedandawake.com. Uh, also, and I'll say it here rather than post it on Instagram. I love everybody's DMs. I really do. I, I love when people get in touch with me. Um, but I know I'm not talking to my listeners right now when I say one thing that does bum me out is the number of DMs that I get from people who are well-meaning, who are like words to the effect of, dude, bro, we got to sit down. We got to talk, blah, blah, blah. I love what you're doing, da, da, da. And... I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I eat it up, right? And, you know, you find out half, half a dozen messages into the exchange, of course, that they absolutely haven't listened to the podcast yet. <laughs> but they want to come on. 
you know, they're, they're ready to come on the show. <laughs> they're ready to sit down and record. And it's like, please listen to the show first and make sure you like the show. And if you like the show and it resonates with you, then I'm sure that I would love to talk to anybody about almost anything. If you see a reason, if you see a relationship, if you see a connection, I'm sure I will too. Um, but, I mean, that comes from a place of mutual respect and a little bit of built-up rapport, right? Um, and then we can have a lot of fun together. So, get at me. That said, get at me. Listen to the show and get at me. You guys who are already listening to the show, get at me. All right. Uh, so, I promised you guys one other little uh, topic, and I have a brief but excellent story here on a very important topic and the question of whether or not the DEA just rescheduled CBD nationally for us all. So the answer to that question is no, the DEA did not reschedule the CBD compound. And we are going to hear right now from writer Mike Adams contributor to Forbes.com on this topic and this was just published on September 28th so this is current information about the recent uh, regulation or deregulation of Epidiolex a commercial FDA approved CBD medication for like national use. So this is an approved product and it is 100% CBD. But as our author Mike points out here, let me remind, rely my joint while we jump into this. Careful listeners will notice that I do that frequently when lighting up on this show is banging my head into the mic stand. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, and I usually never edit it out, so, oh well. Uh, There is a certain level of confusion reverberating throughout the cannabis community right now over the DEA's recent decision to make Epidiolex, the cannabis-based epilepsy drug created by GW Pharmaceuticals, a Schedule V controlled substance. Some folks are convinced that since this FDA-approved medication is pure cannabidiol, that all CBD products fall into the same category. Sadly, this is not true. The federal government still considers all other cannabis-derived CBD products to be a violation of federal law. The DEA's official statement in the Federal Register, which published Friday, as of the time of this article, indicates that this order places FDA-approved drugs that contain CBD derived from cannabis and not more than one-tenth of one percent tetrahydrocannabinols in Schedule 5. What this means is the only CBD medicine considered to have, well, actual medicinal function, as far as Uncle Sam is concerned, is Epidiolex. 
The rest of it is still wrapped up in the federal marijuana ban. The crucial part is that it has to be an FDA-approved drug, of which there is exactly one, right, based on what they just described there. However, and he observes here, it is perfectly understandable how the Apedelex deal led to a state of disarray. In fact, it was the DEA's fault that most folks got the wrong impression in the first place. I, I posit by design, personally. Over the summer, right after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration cleared a Pedialex for distribution in the United States, making it the first drug comprised entirely from cannabis to receive this honor, Barbara Carreno, a spokesperson for the DEA's Public Affairs Office, told Business Insider that the agency had 90 days to put CBD in a lower classification. Quote, we don't have a choice on that, she said. It absolutely has to become Schedule 2 or 3. Of course, word quickly spread that this popular cannabis component was about to be released from the confines of its Schedule 1 categorization. I even, the author, penned an article on the subject called, Is the DEA Being Forced to Reschedule the CBD Compound? which questioned whether the arena of science and medicine wasn't about to witness some additional research opportunities on the heels of this development. Attorney Sean Hauser, a senior associate with Denver-based Vicente Sederberg, LLC, and a director of law firms Hemp and Cannabinoid Group, later clarified that the media had misconstrued what was happening with the PDLX, and big time. There is misunderstanding that cannabis, or CBD, will be immediately rescheduled. But that is not the case. It will be Epidiolex itself, she told New Frontier Data. What is getting scheduled is the Epidiolex itself. Pursuant to the new drug application, relating to its medical efficacy and low potential for abuse. She added, that will inform the federal law for the future. Marijuana is still a Schedule One substance. CBD is not scheduled itself, but as a substance derived from marijuana. So what's the best cannabis hopefuls can expect now that there is an FDA-approved cannabis medicine about to be distributed across the United States? Well, as Leafly editor Ben Adlin wrote in his analysis of the situation, this article's full links, by the way, so definitely check this article out because you can get to each of his sources. The rescheduling move does open the door for additional high CBD medicines to enter the U.S. market, however, and it will likely attract other CBD drug makers to jump in, he wrote. But many popular products in existing medical cannabis markets, such as Canada or certain U.S. states, will be ineligible due to the amount of THC they contain. CBD derived from hemp is a non-issue, has been for some time. But for the DEA to reschedule cannabis-based CBD, it must apply the change to the entire cannabis plant, and that doesn't appear likely to happen anytime soon. Thank you to author Mike Adams. Uh, it says here he's a contributing writer for Forbes. Cannabis Now and something called Bro Bible. His work has also appeared in High Times. And this story has links to follow him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
I think that was a great summary of the hype surrounding Apedeolex and the kind of what it is is a foreshadowing of things to come that is the like impending arrival of several other well-funded CBD products from the you know Bayer Monsantos of the world and you know we'll get a CBD and Neosporin before we get a CBD product derived from you know cannabis plants coming naturally out of any of the legal markets in the respective you know burgeoning areas of the country so top down as opposed to grassroots up right not my not my favorite so that's that's our take on that and that's about what we have for you for this week um again really enjoyed the sort of dip into the nag hammadi texts and i hope you did as well uh next week we're going to be switching it up uh just a little bit and uh it should be pretty fun i think we're gonna talk about our good friend facebook just a little bit um in fact two different ways uh there was the recent facebook hack we're gonna understand the extent of it its impact what any of us need to do i still haven't changed i I think i changed my password this morning but it wasn't even because of the hack um but in addition to the hack there's a story going around and i encourage you to look into it but if you don't look into it we'll talk about it as well about facebook widely abusing their two-part authentication service whether we opt into it or not um in some cases uh and in the case of folks who do opt in uh in some cases sharing some of that data that is shared specifically supposedly to increase security for your account which it also fails to do uh in addition to both of those stories uh we're going to troll ourselves a little bit and flip the script on these last two episodes and explore the question of whether or not Jesus of Nazareth is a historical fiction. So as they say in show business, all that and more on the next episode of Baked and Awake. Until then, my friends, stay curious Stay reading, stay smoking indica, and do shit anyway. Much of the music for today's episode was provided by the always amazing Auntie Luode, whom you should find and follow on both Instagram and Spotify. Additional tracks 
were provided by various artists sourced under Creative Commons license, found at freemusicarchive.org. All artists will receive full attribution in the show notes for today's episode. With our gratitude.